every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk for Wednesday, the 11th of October. This is the podcast where we get right to the heart of some of the top business and finance stories of the day with our expert panel of guests. Thank you for making this show one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the IMF is warning of signs of a slowdown in the world economy after what appeared to be a resilient start to the year. The global economy is limping along, not sprinting, IMF Chief Economist Pierre-Olivier Gourchenas said on Tuesday. Global growth is projected to fall from 3.5% in 2022 to 3% this year and 2.9% next year. The IMF raised its US growth projection for this year by 0.3 percentage points compared with its July update to 2.1%. But for China, the IMF cut its growth forecast for this year to 5% from 5.2% and for next year to 4.2% from 4.5%, saying the economy is losing momentum because of declines in real estate investment and weak consumer sentiments. And the fund called for a forceful response by officials there to restore confidence. The IMF has urged regulators to sharpen their scrutiny of threats from rising bond yields as a continuing surge in global borrowing costs triggers heightened risk in financial markets. A painful global recession and resurgent inflation that leads central banks to raise rates further would put 215 institutions which together account for 42% of global banking assets at risk. Several systematically important institutions in China, Europe and the US will be affected, the IMF said. Bloomberg News is reporting that China is considering raising its budget deficit for 2023 as the government prepares to unleash a new round of stimulus to help the economy meet the official growth targets. Policymakers are weighing the issuance of at least 1 trillion yuan of additional sovereign debt for spending on infrastructure, such as water conservancy projects. And that could raise this year's budget deficit to well above the 3% cap set in March. European stocks surged by the most in 11 months on Tuesday, buoyed by suggestions from Federal Reserve officials that interest rates will remain unchanged when the US Central Bank next meets. The region-wide stock 600 closed 2% higher. That's its biggest daily gain since November 2022. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Sean Debeau, CIO at Interlink Asia Pacific. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. That's That's where you'll also find my daily newsletter, which contains updates on the latest business and finance news from across the Asia-Pacific region. US stocks advanced on Tuesday as investors digested comments from Federal Reserve officials that suggested the central bank may leave interest rates unchanged when it meets at the end of the month. The S&P 500 gained half a percent, ending at 4,358. The Dow notched a third session of gains, adding 135 points or 0.4% to 33,739. The Nasdaq climbed 0.6%, ending at 13,563. 
US Treasury yields fell on Tuesday as investors piled into the traditional haven following the turmoil in Israel. The yield on the 10-year US Treasury fell as much as 18 basis points to 4.62% in Tokyo on Tuesday morning. By the end of the New York session Tuesday, it had rebounded slightly to 4.66%. The yield on the two-year note is back below 5% for the first time in almost a month at 4.98%. Crude oil prices retreated on Tuesday after jumping by the most in six months Monday following Hamas's attack on Israel. Global benchmark Brent settled 0.6% lower, trading at $87.65 per barrel. The FX market was fairly quiet with the US dollar index slightly softer and no standout movers among the major G10 currencies. The yen was weaker, despite the lower US yields and hawkish reports that the BOJ is set to hike its core CPI forecast to 3% from 2.5% for fiscal year 23 to 24. The yen fell 0.2%, trading at 148.71 against the dollar. The yuan got a slight boost in the morning from reports that China is mulling more stimulus before fading in the afternoon. In Shanghai, the Chinese currency ended 0.1% weaker at 7.295 renminbi per dollar. Shares in Hong Kong rose Tuesday after a shortened trading day of just two hours on Monday. The Hang Seng Index climbed 147 points or 0.8% to end the session at a near two-week high of 17,665. Shares of Country Garden tumbled 10.7% after revealing its Mr. Bond payment and it warned Monday that it's unlikely to pay off all its international debt obligations. Stock markets fell on the mainland. The Shanghai Composite was down 0.7% at 3,075. It does look like we're going to see quite a substantial uh, bounce in Hong Kong stocks at the open this morning. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 260 points. That's 1.5% with the index opening at 17,922. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis. Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. To welcome our Wednesday morning guests. We have with us, as always, on a Wednesday morning, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, Enzio von Fahl. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us is Sean DeBow, who's the CIO of Interlink Asia Pacific. Nice to see you again, Sean. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. Let's start with the IMF and its warning on global growth. It's warning of signs of a slowdown in the world economy after what appeared to be a resilient start to the year. IMF Chief Economist Pierre-Olivier Gourinches said on Tuesday, the global economy is limping along, not sprinting. And worldwide, inflation has more than halved from its peak of 11.6% in the second quarter of 2022 to 5.3% a year later, the IMF said. But global growth is projected to fall from 3.5% last year to 3% this year and then 2.9% next year. On some individual countries, the IMF raised its US growth projection for this year by 0.3 percentage points compared with its July update to 2.1%. Also lowered the Eurozone forecast by 0.2 percentage points to 0.7%. The IMF cut its growth forecast for China for this year to 5% from 5.2% previously. 
and then for next year to 4.2% from 4.5%, saying the economy is losing momentum because of declines in real estate investment and housing prices that endanger government revenues from land sales as well as weak consumer uh, sentiment. And it says China's real estate woes require a forceful response by officials there to restore confidence. Finally, it also made an update on Japan. Uh, It said for Japan, uh, its forecast for growth and price gains uh, will be much hotter than the Bank of Japan's targets. The economy is forecast to grow 2% this year. That's an upward revision of 0.6 percentage points. And it sees consumer prices rising by 3.2% this year. So, uh, Enzio, maybe you want to kick off. I know you're not a fan of IMF forecasts, but do you find anything useful or anything uh, that you didn't know about in this uh, in this latest update? No, I don't think anybody found anything that they didn't know about, frankly. They always, these, these multilaterals always tell you the time by looking at somebody else's watch. They do excellent individual studies. I've got to give them that. But when they say that higher rates are starting to bait, to bite, China's momentum is fading, global inflation is strong. I'm sorry, if you haven't been reading the newspapers, then you're kind of out of it anyway. So I just think that then the the heightened risk of the bond turmoil, well, I'm sorry, a camel is a horse designed by committee. And what I mean by that is that it looks to me as if all of these things that they're saying have just been sort of agreed upon as a common denominator, but there's there's no macro insight. That's not to say that they don't produce excellent individual studies, which is which are extremely good. So what is the point of these global growth forecasts? Well, I think they are paid to have a view, and so they create a view by looking at everybody else's forecasts, then compiling them, and then saying, well, this is what we think. Mm. So that's that's that, that's the bottom line. It's like having a house view in, in, in a brokerage, which I was at for years. Sean, do you, do you find anything useful in, in this? I think the only thing that is really remarkable is the fact that we continue to see um, thought leaders talk about the change in consumption patterns around the globe and they highlight the fact that tourism they they call out certain countries but they just keep talking about tourism and inbound tourism around the world mm-hmm. being a consumption stimulus that was not seen in their previous forecast I I don't think that's new information, but I think it's new for them to speak about it, and that's certainly what we see on the ground in Asia. Mm. They are talking about a slowdown in interest rate-sensitive sectors like the manufacturing sector. They mentioned that specifically uh, for, uh, for China. Um, I suppose, again, not no surprise there. We would expect that, wouldn't we, given that interest rates um, are, are going up. But what they do call for is they call for a forceful response from authorities um, in China. But they don't actually say what that forceful response ought to be. But maybe do you want to suggest to NGO what it could be? Well, again, my mantra has always been that until the Beijing allows the private sector to resume creating 80% of all jobs the economy is going to go nowhere in a hurry. It's it's uh, until that happens, until the private sector is allowed to reassume its role of fulfilling demand where it exists, as mm. opposed to trying to sort of concoct demand and thinking this is what I think people want, until that job creation starts, there will be no consumer confidence. The property market will continue tumbling and people won't spend because they don't have any income confidence. Isn't one of the problems that China is trying to put credit, 
put stimulus into areas where um, the issue isn't really one of um, needing more credits. The, the problem is a demand one where there just isn't the demand for the particular areas or services that it's pumping all this credit into. So it's sort of a bit wasted, isn't it? Isn't, isn't that part of the problem? This is probably what my old teacher, Von Hayek, was always yelling out about with us, was that if, you're, if somebody's in a little room trying to concoct where he thinks or she thinks that demand might be headed as opposed to allowing demand to tell you where it is headed, you, mm. you, you just cannot get it right the whole time. We see it in Hong Kong. Let's have the happy Hong Kong and the nightstand <laughs> thing that that's going to really boost our economy here. Well, maybe not. What would you say, Sean, to, to the IMF? They talk about, you know, we need a forceful response to China. I mean, it's not that if Beijing isn't trying, is it? It is trying various policy measures. Maybe they're a little bit disjointed, but it is doing things. We seem to get these piecemeal stimulus uh, uh, announcements. They're not really having the desired effect, though, are they? They're not, but I think it is important to highlight that what we're observing now is that the focus of the stimulus that China is talking about is what I would call smart infrastructure. And we could say that in the past there was accusations of infrastructures of roads to nowhere, and now we're seeing much more active infrastructure, active spending that not only will help to stimulate the economy, but it also makes for a better economy, and also these assets should have higher utilization rates, and that's a big problem because if you are go not going to have assets that have meaningful returns, then how can you justify the investments when the particularly now there's higher scrutiny on the cost of capital. There is a sort of like a, a, a conflict there, though, isn't there? Because if spending and money is going to go into infrastructure projects, if these projects make economic sense, then there shouldn't really be concerns about not meeting your GDP growth target because these projects, as a result of this money going into them, would help um, GDP grow. So they're sort of saying, at the one, one hand, we're putting all this money into projects that make economic sense, but at the same time, we're worried we're not going to achieve our, our forecasts. Peter, the issue is timing, is that in, if you make these decisions today, you're digging the holes and pouring the cement in three months and buying the steel rebar. To get the economic returns, it's not until the second year or third year. And right now, people are watching the real-time numbers on the economic activity of China. So really, all we're going to be having the opportunity to is to see from the lower value added, such as the construction and the related uh, spending in the economy. If we're going to look for these future more enhanced returns, that is some time out, and that's something the market's going to have to price in, but it's not something that you're going to see in tomorrow's print in the paper. Mm. Well, what do you think, Enzio? I mean, a lot of focus on credits. We're going to get credit data out of China um, later on today, which I suspect is going to show what we know already, which is that actually there is plenty of credit available. There's a lot of credit has been pumped um, into the system. Um, it just doesn't seem to have gone to the right productive areas. Well, that, and again, people are not having been so burned in the property market, which we're going to get onto later, I think they're just very, very scared about their incomes and their and their their income security, their their ability to even repay loans. So mm. if if they if they're worried about their jobs, if they're worried about their income, they're hardly going to go and load up on debt, whether they're Chinese, Americans, it doesn't matter. So but how do you boost demand though? 
Because what matters is, um, you know, the, these sectors are not really constrained by scarce capital, are they? They, they? They've got access to capital. They can get capital quite easily and quite cheaply in China. The problem is there is weak demand on the, on the mainland. So how do you deal with that? It's misdirected supply that I keep on coming back to that. It's this Arthur Laffer's supply side economics, but completely perverted, which is that some officials think, think that they know better than the market where demand should be. So let us make the private sector a pawn of the state sector, and that just cannot work. And we see that very much in the property sector, where the commoditization of land and the privatization of housing um, is now sort of really clashing, because it's mm -hmm. a government policy with a private policy that's just gone completely AWOL. Sean, are we seeing any signs at all from what we saw over the Golden Week holiday, the spending patterns, the tourism levels? Are we seeing any signs of demand picking up, or is it still a bit lacklustre? I think that the numbers that we saw on personal consumption over the um, Golden Week was really something that was completely expected. Heavy spending on tourism, he heavy spending on uh, F&B consumption, so really services and, and uh, experiences over goods, and that's something that we've seen that ever since the, the uh, lockdown period. That's a good thing because it's higher quality uh, consumption patterns, mm. but it's, it's not something that's going to make up for this big hole. And the big hole is the real estate market, is that, as Enzio correctly says, is that there's a lack of confidence. And if people have a lack of confidence, they're going to leave their assets in risk-free situations rather than at-risk situations. And that is really on the larger uh, opportunities, which is to take, to take credit, to uh, enhance future opportunities. We just don't see that at the consumer level, and we also don't see it at the corporate level. So that's why the, the, the velocity of credit consumption is also lackluster in China, because mm -hmm. there's not a, a huge demand for Chinese companies to take on additional debt right now. So that's a challenge, that gap. Okay. One other thing I want to talk about with the IMF before we move on to other things. They've also issued their Global Financial Stability um, Report. Uh, they've warned of heightened risk in financial markets because of the surge um, in global borrowing costs in basically in bond yields, which they say could create adverse feedback loops and test the resilience of the global financial system. Now, one thing that I did learn from this, I didn't realize that they stress tested about 900 banks um, around the world. And the thing that they came up with was that under, um, they said that most lenders can handle what is a, they call a baseline scenario of modest global growth and easing inflation. But it did say 55 of these 900, including a group of US regional banks, will be exposed to significant capital losses. But here's something here that I thought was new. Under the scenario of a painful global recession and also inflation that leads central banks to raise rates further, 215 institutions accounting for 42% of global banking assets will be at risk. And that includes several systemically important institutions in China, Europe and the US will be affected. Now, that's something new, isn't it? I think that the information that they're sharing is really top-down information. And if you're going to do an analysis of a bank, you really do need to have the bottom-up. And that's really only at the fingertips of, of, uh, of, monet of monetary authorities in the individual areas. Um, 
clearly, by all accounts, we are in a far better regulated circumstance than we were in before the 2008 meltdown, and we, a lot of lessons have been learned. How do we know that? We take a look at what happened with SVB earlier this year, that it was a very orderly liquidation. Um, other banks st st stood in, and liquidity was provided both by the Fed, but also by major banks that had that liquidity, and we saw, uh, you know, re really in a matter of weeks, this was a memory. So I, d I don't think that one has risk-free or carefree concerns about the global banking system, but I think the global, the, the, because of the heightened regulatory environment that uh, global banks are in, particularly systemically important banks, that we are in a, a less risky situation. The second thing is to keep in mind is that their uh, alert that they're giving is only in the circumstance of a very painful global recession and a mm -hmm. heavy resurgence in inflation. Neither of those two factors are items that we are observing right now. In fact, most uh, people are believing that it, we're either going to have no U.S. recession or a very mild uh, recession. Second is that there is, uh, I'd say, broad consensus that the uh, surge in inflation is behind us and that there is very limited uh, chance of seeing that res uh, resurrect itself in the near term. So th the risk situation that they're providing is not either the base or the one standard deviation expectation of the market. But they do have to provide for these extreme circumstances, don't they? Because we've seen several times in the markets moves of several standard deviations that just shouldn't occur or occur once every billion years or, or so. But nevertheless, they, these, these situations seem to happen uh, sort of quite regularly. Do you think that the banking system, because it's used up quite a lot of resources over the summer, didn't it, in sort of bailing out Silicon Valley Bank and, and others, we can't expect the big financial institutions to keep on stepping in time and time again. And also um, the federal de uh, deposit uh, system used up quite a bit of resources as well in bailing out these banks. If, if we saw, um, you know, several global institutions run into trouble because they must be sitting on huge losses now uh, from, the, from what we're seeing in the bond markets. Um, is the system up to recapitalizing them? I think that you know, it all depends on how hard you stress it. If you stress something hard enough, you're going to certainly see some stress in the market. I think that given the circumstance and the economic outlook that we have right now, even taking that out a couple standard deviations of what could be a worst-case scenario under today's scenario, that I think that the, the global banks are definitely in a reasonable situation to protect each other. Mm -hmm. And also, going back to the point of the FDIC, the amount of money, while the FDIC immediately, they absorbed those losses, they did pass those losses on to the shareholders of large listed banks around the world because they did that by way of increasing the premiums that they charge on federal deposit insurance. So it was only a timing in is issue, and it wasn't really a liquidity issue for FDIC. FDIC and the U.S. Fed, who stands behind it, is in very good shape. Well, NGO, anyway, we seem to be in the situation at the moment where if you listen to Fed speakers, they seem to be more and more united on the fact that we've re reached a peak um, in, in interest rates. They're talking about proceeding carefully now uh, with called forthcoming rate decisions and also taking into account that what's happening in the bond market is naturally tightening financial uh, conditions and therefore they ought to take that into account because that's almost the equivalent of another uh, 25 basis point rate rise. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, that's pretty good common sense that they're 
expounding there, and I think that that makes a lot of sense, that the bond market is doing a lot of the Fed's job. I don't know if anybody here knows what percentage of U.S. loans are fixed rate and what are variable rate. I just don't have a grip on that number. I suspect a lot of them are fixed rate. And so um, I think that, but once these fixed rate things mature, and I, I believe that at present the average mortgage rate is like 3.6% in the U.S., but once that matures and they start rolling over, then you'll find some, to get back to Sean's sort of lagged effects in different contexts, obviously, you'll find that the, the mortgage market does get a bit of a hit in the U.S. The other point that I just want to make very briefly is that the banks do have sizable buffers, again, buttressing what Sean was saying, because they've not been raising the savings deposits rates as much as the lending rates. That's why the bank profits are going up so much. Mm -hmm. I suspect there will now be pressure to raise the deposit rates also. Okay. Now, China. China's considering, apparently, raising its budget deficits for this year to unleash a new round of stimulus to help the economy. That actually boosted uh, Hong Kong markets yesterday. Policymakers are weighing the issuance of at least a trillion yuan, that's about 137 billion US dollars, of additional sovereign debt for spending on infrastructure such as water conservancy uh, projects. And that could raise this year's budget deficit to well above the 3% cap set in March. I mean, Sean, this is still nowhere near the size of the budget deficits of the US, is it? Which is, what, about 5% of uh, GDP? But nevertheless, um, is this a good idea? I think it's a very important idea. I think that the market is looking both for the signs coming out of Beijing that there is resolve to take very important measures that will cause a uh, heightened confidence, which, as we both discussed, is a very lackluster right now. And second is to actually see the nature of the spending. We, we need to make sure that the spending is directed towards active economic activity mm-hmm. and, 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 in fact, kept away from the real estate market and, and, and definitely keep away from uh, bailing out um, projects that should never have been built at all. And in fact, if they do this properly, um, because, you know, if you measure your debt to GDP, if you're increasing debt, but it is done productively, it will help boost that denominator, won't it? It will help boost GDP as well. So actually, sort of debt to GDP is not going to shoot up, providing this is productive investment that's being done. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I have to get back to my old chestnut, which is vocational training. I really think that we're in in the worldwide, a lot of the polarization is not only but is also because of the the rotting state of middle class education forget us with college degrees and all that but it's the middle class education which is not training the young people for jobs of the future and i really think that if the if the main and government were to set an example worldwide of also introducing a lot more vocational training hint hint also the hong kong government I think that that's not a panacea for all of our problems, but I think that that would be something that would boost GDP quite considerably, and that would then reduce this debt to GDP just because people get jobs. And one of those issues is that we're seeing this very high level of unemployment amongst uh, new graduates, both from colleges and universities in the United in uh, China, and that is a challenge. It's not just a challenge because of the unemployment situation, but also it has a very meaningful knock-on effect in confidence, particularly in a country that has one or maximum two children in a family. If that child has done what they were supposed to do, they went through the education system, they graduated, and now they're unemployed that really does weigh on consumption because confidence is low.
So this has a direct impact on GDP, a Correct. direct linkage between this youth unemployment es rates and especially, growth. Especially, Peter, because 11, I believe it's 7 or 11 million graduates are being pumped out every year. So mm -hmm. there's a slight case of oversupply here. But the problem is the government eliminated various sectors that were natural employers um, of, of that youth segment, things like the online education segments, for example, which just got wiped out um, overnight. The technology sector, um, I mean, that's traditionally been a big uh, employer of graduates, hasn't it? Brackets, so it's sort of yeah, brackets open, private sector, brackets closed, yes. Mm. Yeah. Now, what about the property woes? That's another important issue here, isn't it? Transactions over the Golden Week holiday, which the government was hoping uh, would pick up, didn't really materialise. Daily sales volumes fell 17% uh, compared with last year. That's according to data from China Index Holdings, which tracks 35 cities. Lower tier cities saw a 50% drop uh, from a year ago. And it seems like uh, the buyer restrictions in China's top tier cities is now impacting demand in smaller cities um, as well. Fitch Ratings, they said on Tuesday that pressure on China's property sector continues to pose cross-sector credit risks and the government's moderately accommodative policies are unlikely to reverse home buyers' sentiment. So what is well, okay, I'll, I'll give it a kickoff just from a macro because I, I don't understand the companies, you know that. Um, if people anywhere in the world see that the, the value of their property has declined, they again feel poorer, full stop, whether they're mm. in Germany, Israel, Turkey, Alabama, it doesn't matter. Wherever they are, they're just going to feel poor. And indeed, there was a fabulous article written by, I, don't, I can't speak Mandarin, Joe Shin, who used to be, I believe, the editor of the South China Morning Post on the 10th of um, October, just yesterday, I believe, saying that the commoditization of land in China and the privatization of housing ownership have changed the country's economic landscape for the better, but then it's because of the abuse of certain company owners and the race of the individuals on the on the local government level to restrict the amount of land available that's what's causing this mess in china that is again a key factor killing the confidence of the consumer because his or her property values have simply fallen or they're not even getting the houses which they paid to, which they paid for Sean, what do you make of some of the news we've seen this week from the property developers? We've got Evergrande creditors warning of a potential liquidation when the hearing comes up in Hong Kong on October the 30th. They described uh, the mainland's efforts uh, at giving regulatory approval for Evergrande's restructuring as basically a botched effort that's left investors in the dark and they say that basically their baseline case now is the company is going to be liquidated at the winding up hearing and that's going to likely lead to the uncontrolled collapse of the group. Now of course this is creditors saying this, there's a lot of public pressure being put on it but I'm sure behind the scenes there's a lot of discussions going on as well with, with Evergrande but on top of that we have Country Garden which is on the verge of default as well. It has said itself it can't, it's defaulted on an on a interest pay, payment on a Hong Kong bond and it's unlikely to be able to meet its obligations on its international uh, obligations. In some ways, I think ch Ever uh, Country Garden is more important even than Evergrande, isn't it? Because of its impact on confidence in the, in the market overall and the fact that it's so exposed to these third and fourth tier cities. First of all, let's uh, phrase this data as backward-looking information, not forward-looking information. What we're doing now is we are cleaning up a mess. 
that has been festering over the last number of years uh, for all the reasons that NZO just outlined. And the second thing is, while people might use expletives to explain what's going on right now because they each, each side of a credit organization has their own agenda, what is working is the Hong Kong court system is working very well in the rule of law. These are uh, properly structured organizations and they're in the uh, court system of Hong Kong. If there is a bankruptcy reorganization, that means that the system works and there will be an orderly organization. It's no surprise to anyone that either of these organizations are highly troubled and that's not new news. What the, what the market's going to be watching is how this works itself out. If it works itself out in a reasonably orderly fashion, which it appears that it is, then that's a positive looking forward. If it starts to crumble, which it doesn't appear to be doing, then that's a negative. Also, when right now when we think about Country Garden particularly, we're, we're thinking about where people are buying that incremental property. No question right now the incremental buyer of a new real property that's purchasing for consumption and, and, and to live in as opposed to, to speculate and rent out, they're buying from more state-owned organizations because they feel more confident that their deposit that they're putting in today will yield a finished product in three years from now. Again, that's something the market is expecting. It's priced in. And so what we're watching now is how we work our th way through and just make sure we navigate any unexpected explosions in this workout. But the workout is working. The problem is um, Evergrande doesn't have any assets left in Hong Kong, does it? Most of its assets mm -hmm. are on the mainland. Most of its liabilities are on the mainland. So really it's, uh, it's symbolic what happens in Hong Kong. But we'll see how that actually works out. If those assets are seized, how the, how the system works through, I believe that the market has appropriately priced that there will be an orderly uh, addressing of this situation. If it isn't, we would see the market meaningfully down from where we are right now. What is interesting is that on the mainland, what is going up is purchases of second-hand properties, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you're worried about uh, your new home being delivered, then buy one in the secondary market instead that's already built and, and lived in. They may not, most likely, Peter, they're not lived in. Most likely they're bare share properties that, because in most properties in China are sold in the, in the bare shell format, which means you're not moving into an apartment that someone's fully renovated and you have to now re-renovate to meet your taste. They're bare shell concrete on the bottom, on the top. Uh, maybe they have air con, they likely have all the utilities. And so, but as you correctly point out, they're ready to deliver and there you could, it's a tangible asset that you can physically see. The mm -hmm. second reason is you've got motivated sellers. There are lots of people who lack confidence in the market and where they might own two or three investment properties, they want to reduce their exposure. So they'll take a meaningful haircut on what they perceive to be the market price of that residence. So when you have motivated buyers and motivated sellers moving and it's in a circumstance where there's physical asset to deliver, that's a much better uh, circumstance. Yeah, it's as opposed to the off-plan stuff that they're just not getting, and that's where they all feel a little bit deprived. So I think it's it's a bit, the other point that I would add to what Sean is saying is that there's also an international workout going on. Even I know that, um, which is also again with the I believe with U.S. creditors. So we'll see how well this rule of law really. I mean, it's it's begging the question with China that it's got to get more of that stuff coming in. And I think they're, they're being quite pragmatic about it over time, allowing our system here to take care of it for them for now. 
Okay, let me finally get your thoughts on the markets. The, the big focus has been on the bond markets, of course, uh, the, the last couple of weeks. Until this week, when uh, the shock of Israel um, has, has sent yields lower, we've seen what, what traders call a bear steepening of the yield curve of, of bonds. In other words, the whole yield curve is moving up, rates are moving up across the curve, but longer term rates are moving up higher than shorter term rates, which is the opposite of what happened last year when we had a bull steepening of the curve when short rates were rising uh, faster because the Fed was raising um, interest rates. So here uh, we've got a bear steepening um, of, of the curve. Well, that, that did come to an end um, the last couple of days. But Sean, what, what is the impact of this? What's going on in the in the Treasury markets? Well, first, let's, let's think about what this new risk is. The new risk of the Hamas attack in Israel, Hamas, which is an internationally recognized terrorist organization, they launched a massive humanitarian attack on Israel. And that has caught the market very much off uh, guard. There was, in fact, constructive discussions going on between Israel and, and the Gaza authorities. And this has really uh, upset the market. It's upset the market because that's caused the U.S. government to take unanticipated moves. We already have one aircraft carrier group off the coast of Israel, and there's talk now of a second one coming there. That in immediately caused a, a spike in oil prices, but now we're right back down to about 86, 89. So it tells us that the market is calm. But it's something that says that there is a risk of heightened concern, lower consumption. Lower consumption is a cooling of the U.S. market. You, therefore, people are moving to the risk-free assets, which is causing the rates, which were peaking at about 4.88 on the 10-year, to soften a bit, still a very high rate at 4.6. And, and that's telling us that we've got a real situation going on here. But for me, near term on the bond market, I think we have to really watch the behavior coming out of Iran, Syria, and Lebanon. If there's any sort of uh, aggressive behavior by them, and it, that in turn causes the U.S. fleet to take any action, then we, have to, we will see, in my opinion, a meaningful fall in 10-year yields in the United States because there will be a move to, risk, to uh, havens of safety. Now, we're saying that in the context of uh, the other haven of safety, uh, Japan, seeing you know, you know, issues with inflation and seeing issues with a very weak currency. Mm. And you know, for, 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 this to, for, for this to worsen and, and start affecting global demand, it basically it's got to spread, hasn't it? It's not um, to um, drag in other countries like Iran, for example, which is a global oil producer. If it's just contained in Israel and Gaza, that's not going to have a mm. huge impact on uh, global demand, although, of course, it is a huge humanitarian disaster for, for the people in the area. Yeah, I think it's actually without being cute, it's actually the expectation of it to spread. I think that's just about as bad as the, the, the spreading itself. Um, and I just want to say on this Treasury bond blow-up, it's something in your old world, Peter, of bond trading, the rising term premium. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to continue rising on the bonds just because of these expectations of war, of unrest, and frankly, the world in a muddle, to be quite honest with you. So... Um, you've got that on top of the U.S. budget. Um, today's Treasury market is five times the amount it was in 2008. It's now 25 trillion U.S. dollars. I mean, and we talked, we get all worked up about a quarter percent rise in the Fed funds rate. Well, what about the 20 percent rise in the bond yields over the past year or so? I'm making it up a little bit. That's really where the action is. And that gets back to what you were saying before about the Fed 
guy saying, well, actually, we have to also look at the bond market. Maybe it's doing part of the job for us. I think it's not, and it's also the environment that in right now. We've got two massive conflicts, one that is hopefully uh, uh, finding some solution in time, which is the Ukraine-Russia situation, which definitely weighs on, on the global risk premium, and now this emerging and very catastrophic circumstance of the attack of, of Israeli uh, innocent citizens. And those two things will likely slow slow consumption and that in turn uh, does the work of the fed uh, which is why we have such a, a high likelihood of no raise in rates coming up and in fact uh, there's a very heightened uh, opportunity for a cut in the middle of uh, 2024 the that cut was expected in early 2024 it's moved out uh, because of high inflation relative to the desires of the fed to the summer but still, now we are at least in, in vision of a period where we could start seeing cuts. And I'm sure there's going to have to be some focus, isn't there, on the U.S. budget? Because um, the U.S. could be in the position where it's got to fund now two wars. It's already struggling to fund, uh, you know, Ukraine. And now it's got to fund Israel as well. This is going to be a huge strain for a country that doesn't like cutting um, the two biggest parts of its budget, which is sort of social, Medicare and, uh, and defense. The attack on the innocent Israelis is not going to have a meaningful impact near term on the expenditures of the U.S. government because Israel is very well prepared for such a circumstance. But it, much more importantly, it's having a very meaningful impact on the expectations of the market and the concern of the market. I think it's the, it's the future um, risk and unknowns that is the bigger issue for the market uh, rather than the actual cash flow. On the, on, the, on the U.S. budget, I'm more concerned of the fact that the Congress is still without a leader, mm. that we are in the midst of a 45-day delay in shutting down the U.S. government, so action needs to be taken, mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of political will on both sides to find compromise. To me, that's the bigger issue, not the actual nominal amount. Okay, another big issue that we yeah. could spend uh, another yeah, half an hour discussing. We'll have to put that aside to another day. But thank you both very much indeed. That's Sean Debeau, who is the CIO of Interlink Asia Pacific, and Gia Von Fall, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Good morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Um, let me kick off by asking you about this uh, Japan Weeks that uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has been holding. Basically, he's been appealing, hasn't he, to foreign fund managers uh, to go and invest more um, in Japan, in particular calling on sovereign wealth funds that have about $18 trillion of assets to invest. He wants that in Japan. It sounds like he's doing the good old playbook of when you want some money, get the foreigners to come and cough up. <laughs> well, I mean, in some ways, I'm thinking it's about time, right? I mean, since 2020, uh, Japan's stock market has been in the global headlines for some of the right reasons when Warren Buffett showed up, right? And mm -hmm. I think in many ways, uh, Buffett being here kicking the tires and upping his investments here and there in these Japanese trading companies has in many ways put Japan in the spotlight in the ways in which Japan wants to be, and certainly a lot of these, you know, as, as critical as I was of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, um, some of his reforms with regard to corporate governance um, have gained traction. And mm -hmm. so in many ways, you do see this reappraisal 
of these cash-rich Japanese companies. And Japan, of course, in the last couple of years of uh, the economic turmoil, the COVID era and whatnot, Japan has been seen as somewhat of a safe haven. So I think it is wise that Prime Minister Kishida is reminding the world that, you know, Japan is open for business. Um, we're here to listen to your concerns and your uh, bits of optimism about where Japan is going and let's work together. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a positive step. I'm glad to see it. Foreign investors, though, are pretty keen on Japan, aren't they? I mean, if Larry Fink was there at BlackRock, they're already investing in Japan. They, they like Japan. They are. I mean, absolutely. I think, but I think one of the reasons why Japan is in vogue in the moment, again, is it's the safe haven um, uh, dynamic. And the question is, where will Japan be three or five years from now in terms of uh, investor sentiment? And I think that's what Prime Minister Kishida needs to be working on. You know, basically, Prime Minister Kishida this month uh, reached the two-year mark in office and he's talked a very big game about economic reform he's talked a lot about a kind of new capitalism to spread the benefits of economic growth but also to reinvigorate japan's ipo market a lot of these reforms have been they remain on the on the drawing board and so to what extent you know if, if this in any way in any ways um catalyzes his government to act faster and more urgently to implement some of these extra reforms, I think that will be a step in the right direction because I think, you know, certainly investors are re, they're revisiting Japan. And the question is, does the government realize that it needs to take a variety of steps to maintain that level of interest in some ways to validate the optimism you're seeing towards Japan? And that's, I think, the missing link. Has, shouldn't he also, though, as, as well as turning to foreign investors, shouldn't he maybe also be trying to persuade domestic investors um, to, to find ways of investing in all sorts of products? I mean, there's, what, $14 trillion worth of household savings there. Um, in some ways, it's actually the domestic investor, isn't it, that needs to be more positive about investing in the market? Yes, and there's also one important investor we're not talking about so far in this conversation, and that's Masayoshi Son, right? He's the most important venture capitalist in the world. His vision fund is sprinkling billions of dollars and potential unicorns everywhere, for the most part, except for in Japan. And I think mm. that, you know, in many ways, Masayoshi Son's strategy is to leverage growth elsewhere because Japan's market is aging. And the stock market here has been somewhat lethargic over the last 20 years. So he's looking overseas. I think part of the, the challenge for Prime Minister Kishida is basically saying to Mr. Son, hey, um, why don't you invest more in Japan? And why don't we work together in, in partnership? You know, one of the things that Prime Minister Kishida has talked about is using the giant government pension investment fund, the GPIF, which is the biggest such in pension, uh, pension fund in the world. He's been trying to find a way to harness that financial firepower to act as the giant uh, venture capital mm. operation for Japan. I mean, I think in many ways you want to get Masayoshi Son uh, into the conversation, and I don't think Prime Minister Kishida has done that just yet. And that, that's the problem, isn't it? Because you mentioned the <clears throat> IPO market earlier. A, a lot of companies in Japan either don't get to the IPO stage or, or they list their companies actually way too early because of the lack of venture capital funding, and then you end up with all the retail investors taking all the risk on them. That's why you have a lot of scrappy startups in Japan, not a lot of unicorns. You, you have a lot of companies that go public, as you mentioned, too early. But in many ways, they don't get to benefit from that high growth period early on. And what we're seeing right now also is a lot of these startups are looking at the NASDAQ in New York for listings, not in Japan. And that's something that I think the Tokyo Stock Exchange and the so-called Mother's Board um, needs to be working on as well. I mean, if Japan is trying to position itself as a, an alternative 
to Hong Kong, to Shanghai, to Singapore at this moment in Asia, it needs to, in many ways, maintain the, the, the trust and the credibility with Japanese companies and stop them from going abroad, never mind attracting increased um, issuance or listings here in, in Tokyo from overseas. And, and we had that issue with iSpace, didn't we? The, the, the company that tried to land the, uh, the spacecraft um, on the moon, the, 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 the book runner there, which I think was, was Nico, wasn't it? They, had to, they asked investors to sign a document saying that they were aware of the risks of investing in the company and then other book runners just pulled out altogether from the IPO. Yeah, I mean, Japan's IPO game has, has always been somewhat um, antiquated, if you will. And I think that there, there are there, there is a need to look at the world around us and to change. And I think that's one of those areas where Japan's been been slow to progress, if you will. And I think one of the, the issues also right now is you have rising borrowing costs around the globe, U.S. Treasury yields rising to 16-year highs. That's also having somewhat of a chilling effect on the IPO market here in Japan. And I think in many ways that puts a spotlight back on the Bank of Japan and, and where they're, they're at at the moment. So the uncertainty about the Fed, about the Bank of Japan, is not helping the IPO scene in Japan at the moment. And what about uh, the asset management industry <clears throat> overall? Would it, would, do, do you need more foreign players entering that uh, sort of industry and then sort of um, trying to sort of raise the quality of asset managers who, as you say, are then going to maybe uh, spread their funds more widely into venture capital firms and the likes? Well, I think, you know, Japan has always suffered from a bit, a bit of a brain drain, right? Most of the best Japanese asset managers tend to be working in New York and London, um, simply because the opportunities are greater there. In some ways, Japan needs to maintain more of that talent at home. And, and that means, in, in some ways, creating a more lively and disruptive investment uh, model here in Japan. And that's something, too, that, uh, that, that's been lagging. You know, I think when you look at the Shinzo Abe reforms from the beginning in 2013 till till 2020, basically, he went to Wall Street back in 2013, 2014, saying Japan's open for business, buy my Abenomics. Um, and I think a lot of that, the, the memo hasn't exactly gotten out in Japan either, where so many asset managers are working overseas and so many funds in Japan invest overseas because the opportunities are better. So in many ways, when Japan thinks it as a sales job globally, a lot of the sales job is is here in Japan. Mm. And so what does um, the Prime Minister plan to do to try and unlock that $14 trillion of, of household savings and get that going into you know, the markets, into investment products? Well, I mean, one of one of the ideas he's, he's floating, of course, is reinvigorating the IPO market here in, in Tokyo, and that's that's a work in progress. Um, he's also trying a variety of, of interesting things that are, you know, maybe in the, the realm of, um, you know, better late than ever, like, for example, attracting more foreign talent. One of the things he's doing right now is he's talking about creating these English-only special enterprise zones uh, starting in Tokyo, but also around the country. And it's a great idea in terms of attracting more, you know, hedge fund activity, more venture capital activity, more entrepreneurial startup activity. Um, but it's one of those ideas that probably would have done a lot better in 2003 than uh, 2023. Better late than never. Um, I just worry that we'll be talking about the parameters of how to, how to do this for the next two to five years before we actually begin implementing it. 
Let me ask you about the economy. The IMF in its uh, global growth forecasts uh, is quite bullish on Japan. It's raised its forecast for growth for both growth and price gains, actually. It's projecting inflation now is going to run much hotter than what the BOJ um, is saying. The economy's forecast to grow 2% this year. That's an upward revision of 0.6 percentage points from uh, July. Uh, it also sees the consumer prices rising by 3.2%. Uh, this year uh, compared with its previous forecast of 2.7% which was made um, back in April. Sounds like the IMF is pretty bullish. Do you sort of concur with that? I think so and I think the IMF is also hinting at the safe haven dynamic in Japan that we were discussing Mm. a few moments ago. Japan for the most part is relatively stable at the moment while volatility reigns everywhere else but I think that you know one of the problems Japan is having and I think the IMF report uh, alluded to this in other areas, is that you know you have this inflation problem around the globe. You have the yen at about 150 to the dollar, and the problem is Japan is importing a lot of bad inflation. It's importing inflation from elevated oil and food prices, not organically because of strong demand uh, in Japan. And that's exactly the kind of inflation you don't want. And I think when you look at the the crisis in the Middle East right now the way oil prices are spiking, I think the BOJ is uh, really sitting around in some ways uh, looking at the drawing board and tearing things up and trying to find a new way because I think the BOJ right now is looking at the fact that Japan is facing inflation, but it's also facing some deflationary forces in Japan still here in the form of wages, right? I mean, wage growth has not increased the way that I think economists had expected this year um that inflation i mean basically deflation in wages or at least you know disinflation in wages is still a problem at a moment where japan is importing inflation so if you're the bank of japan you're mm-hmm. caught between these two worlds of what do we do and a lot of monetary policy in japan right now is being decided in washington right a lot of it has to do with when the fed stops raising interest rates and we just don't know when that is will the crisis in the middle east prompt the Fed to take a breather and say that the global financial system cannot withstand another rate hike, or will they look at oil prices and say we have to tighten even more aggressively? So in many ways, uh, that Bank of Japan policy is being made in Washington as we speak. Uh, we've got two wars going on now, one in Ukraine, one in Israel. Um, is, is Japan immune from the, the spillover effects from, from both of those? Not at all. In fact, you know, a lot of the inflation Japan is getting already is because of elevated commodity prices on an undervalued currency. And I think Japan, you know, one of the areas where Kushida has uh, um, overperformed, I think, in the view of many, many Japanese, is in foreign policy. Mm. And so I think when you look at these, these dual crises going on in Ukraine and in the Middle East, um, this is a challenge for, for Kushida in terms of straddling uh, Japanese priorities, but also staying true to his best friend in Washington, D.C., Joe Biden. And so it'll be an interesting few months. But I think that if anyone had a crisis in the Middle East that's raising oil prices on their bingo cards for 2023, I'm, I'm not sure who that person is. Yeah, I mean, this, this is interesting times, isn't it, that, that we live in tragic times Indeed. as, as well. Too interesting, much too interesting for me. Yep. Okay, William, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Thank you, Peter. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. <laughs> You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. 
And thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment. We're also going to look at how Hong Kong's mandatory provident funds have performed so far this year with Francis Chong, Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.